Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8. through 8. grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion. A choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is profitable for us, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Lord, we pray that your word would have its good effect this morning and would work on our hearts and our minds. And Father, we pray that we would have a childlike posture toward it, Father, that we would yield to this word and love it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's start with a question this morning. Do you, does it bother you that so many reject Christ? Does it bother you that so many people reject Jesus Christ? Does it disturb your faith that so many reject him? Does it shake your faith that so many reject Jesus Christ? Scientists and intellectuals and rulers and entertainers and journalists, the rich, your, your neighbors, your literal neighbors, your co-workers, so many of these men and women may be willing to speak of some God, lowercase g, or higher power, but they resolutely reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so the very core of Christianity is what they find to be reprehensible. Right? They, they are happy to speak to you about a God, but are very uncomfortable or even hostile towards you when you bring up Jesus. That's been my experience. There's nothing new about that reaction, right? There's nothing new at all about that reaction. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, makes it clear that he himself had experienced many who rejected Christ. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. 
In our passage this morning, the Apostle Peter is trying to encourage Christians who are facing persecution and rejection by other people because of their faith. The Apostle Peter does not want those who have believed to be discouraged by the unbelief they see around them. So so he describes Christ in a certain way and then describes different responses to Christ and his work. So let's begin with this description of Jesus. You hopefully remember that last week's sermon focused on the written word of God. The Apostle um, Peter wrote, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And hopefully that exhortation led you to rededicate yourself, right, to reading God's word, to meditating on God's word and doing all that you can to study God's word in the context of the church. And the Apostle Peter now in verse 4 of chapter 2 moves on from a contemplation of the written word to a commendation of the living word. Right? We come to the word of God written, but in that word of God written, we are really coming to Jesus Christ himself. Right? He, is, he is the central theme. Right? The center reality of all that scripture. You remember what Jesus himself said about scripture? That it was all about him. From beginning to end, it was all about him. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. From the beginning where the triune God creates man in his image to the end where we are taught about the the consummation of the ages in the marriage supper of the Lamb, the scriptures are all about Jesus. Scriptures are all about our Savior. So it goes without saying that if you are a Christian and the scriptures from the beginning to end speak of Christ, you should probably be interested in studying them. They're all about your precious Savior. Now notice what Peter says about Jesus. And coming to him as to a living stone. A living stone. What does Peter mean when he calls Jesus a living stone? So often scripture uses the image of a stone for something that is not living. Right? It's the opposite of living. For example, the image of the heart of stone. Right? Means that it is a heart that is not alive. But here Peter says that Jesus is a living stone. Whereas previously, Peter had used a metaphor metaphor for the word um, as milk. Here he compares Jesus to a living stone. Stones are stable, right? Stones are heavy. Stones, large stones have a glory about them. But they're heavy and stable. Upon large stones and upon and with large stone structures are, are built that can stand for millennia. Right? Think of Stonehenge and how those huge rocks have remained unmoved for thousands, hundreds, thousands of years. So the metaphor of Jesus as a stone is meant to convey that he's solid. He is, 
stable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he's not dead stone. Right? That unfeelingly sits in the same place, yielding to the continual pull of gravity. Right? He is a living stone. He has life in and of himself. In him, all men live and move and exist. Right? He's the foundation of all that is created, of all that is living. He preexisted all that exists. He is a living being that, like a stone, is stable and weighty and solid. And so the apostle then... <clears throat> The apostle then goes on and says that that living stone has been rejected by men. The living stone, that glorious stone has been, that has been rejected by men. And this, dear brothers and sisters, was no surprise to Jesus himself. Right Near the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in in their law. They hated me without a cause." So though though coming to earth in order to love them, Jesus was despised and rejected by men, as we learn in that glorious passage in Isaiah 53. As, As we see many around us rejecting Christ, we should not be surprised or begin to doubt the strength of our own faith. This rejection by men marks the ministry of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the ages, he will make a big show of those who loved him and those who rejected him. The former are called sheep and the latter are called goats. But as I stated earlier, the sheep are often discouraged and begin doubting when they see the vast amount of goats around them. And so Peter, as Jesus did before him, reminds them that the Christian lot in life is to serve and love someone who most people hate. That's the Christian's lot in life. Right? Contrasted to this rejection of Jesus by men, the apostle Peter goes on to say that that though Jesus was rejected by men, he was choice or chosen and precious in the sight of God. Right? God the Father declared that preciousness when Jesus was baptized and when he was transfigured. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And though he experienced the prideful, sinful, utterly 
hateful and insane response of rejection from those he had knit together in their mother's wombs. Throughout eternity past and during his earthly ministry and now and forever, he knows the love his father has for him. And the father knows the love that the son has for him. This love is enough for the son. This love that the father has for the son is enough for the son. Perhaps that's the, the solidity of Jesus being a living stone. But is this assurance of the father's love for you enough for you? Just assurance of the father's love. Or are you rocked to the foundation of your being when sinful mankind doesn't honor Christ as you do? Does it rock you to the core of your being? Do you have to see more and more sports stars and intellectuals become Christians? Is it helpful to you that Kanye West has recently professed faith in Jesus and now you feel like you have more stability to your faith? No such trouble for Jesus. He just delighted in the Father's love through the hand, though the hands of sinful man would crucify him. He still was delighting in the love of his Father. So the Apostle Peter is describing Jesus, hoping to build the confidence of those who believe. And remarkably, in verse 5, begins with these words, You also. Right? You also. And you should sit on the edge of your seat. You also what? I mean, I'm going to be brought into this comparison to Jesus. You also, believers are now going to be described, but the Holy Spirit's first word is that we are like Christ because we, by faith, are incorporated into Christ. By faith. We have a new head that represents us, and so as Jesus goes, those who truly believe in him go. Right? So we too are living stones. And those living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, each of us, think of this by our common union with Christ, are being incorporated into a building. And what is that building? What can this mean? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians which will be helpful to us here in Peter's letter. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we, those living stones made alive by Christ and in Christ, are being fashioned together as God's household. Right? The word of God is the foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And the whole building, the whole building that these living stones are being incorporated into is a holy temple in the Lord. But let's not get overly complicated about this, right? This temple is this temple in the Lord is the church. It's the household of the faith. 
right? It is God's people corporately conjoined by our common connection in Jesus Christ, right? Now again, this letter is meant to encourage those who are experiencing the hatred of the world for their faith, right? It's meant to encourage those who are feeling isolated and broken off from Christ. And how would this incorporation in something greater be an encouragement to those Christs? Well, one commentator puts it this way. He said, the living God counts supremely precious this living stone to whom we come and through our union to Christ by faith our God regards us as precious beloved treasures no matter what rejection and abuse the world shows to us and I would add to that not only does he regard us as he does his son because he sees his son in us but he is joining us together even now as his church in this life to experience the love and encouragement that comes by life together in a wicked and perverse generation. It's like coming to church is boarding the ark, right? But the purpose of that living temple, the purpose of God taking all these stones, his son is the chief cornerstone, and him taking all these stones is not merely so that we might have a refuge from the world and withdraw from the world and into the church. No, the purpose of the temple was to manifest the presence of God in the world. Right? It is not a refuge from the world. It is to manifest the presence of God in the world. The glory of God dwelled in the temple, and it was very difficult, you remember, from reading your Old Testament, for the high priest to enter into the presence of God. In that temple, he, he, it was very difficult and he could only do it once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to wash, he had to wear the right clothing, he had to shed the blood of, of animals that were unblemished. Now with the temple veil torn in two after the cataclysm of the final sacrifice of Jesus, the presence of God is manifested in the temple of his people. The living stones of redeemed souls incorporated into the church, which is the very body of Christ. This is why we are described as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood in verse 5. The presence of God is in Christ's church, and we now, though in a different form, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But I want to pull back for a moment and simply say that living In the presence of God is the goal. Living in the presence of God. Getting back to the garden. You remember when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden? They were in the presence of God without any guilt. Perfectly at peace. And that is the whole ball of wax. We want to live in the presence of God. But our sinfulness made that very difficult. So in the Old Testament, to enter into the presence of God in the temple, a little garden, you had to go through much cleansing and cleaning and butchering. And then it was only once a year that you could enter. Then, in Christ, when the perfect sacrifice was offered, access to the presence of God was opened up. And a new and a living way was opened up. Right? But again, the purpose was so that we could be back with God in the presence of God. 
The whole goal is to get back to the garden where when we, um, where we were in the presence of God without sin. And this is why all this language of describing Christians as holy priests is here. right? Because the goal of mankind through all history has been to go back to fellowship with God. And God in his mercy, because we were dead in our sins, made it possible through his son, a faithful high priest. Right In Hebrews we read this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, right, that place where, where that high priest went once a year, we have, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice that it says in that, that we draw near to God. We are priests entering the presence of God, all of which was made possible by our high priest's sacrifice of himself. Again, The goal is to live with God, to return to the awesome fellowship we had with God in the garden. Our high priest Jesus has made it possible by offering himself. Now we are holy priests who who get to enter into God's presence. And that presence is particularly manifested where? In Christ's body, the church. There's incredible glory in this. Dear brothers and sisters, you are not just a Christian. You are the church. You are not just a collection of individuals, but you are the household of God. Right? You are not just coming into worship to do something. But you are the visible presence of God on this earth. Right? You are part of a much larger deal than, you're making, than, than you making an individual choice to do something on a Sunday morning. You are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Those who offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. I guess another way to put this would be that we must repent of our consumeristic approach to worship as a choice we make to do something with our time that satisfies us, right? Like we would buy a sweater. It's much more than that. Our worship is the manifestation of God's presence in this world. We are priests showing the world the way to live in God's presence through faith in Christ. There is something much larger going on here than you making that, that easy choice on, uh, about what to do with your time. If you are in Christ, you're a member of a holy priesthood, right? If you're in Christ, every one of your praises is shouting to the world that there's a way to get back to the garden. There's a way to come into the presence of God, almighty God. Makes me think that many of us need to figure out how to be better priests to God. We need to be better priests, not just 
sad individuals who bump into worship every once in a while. But God has given me a calling to be priest in his own household. I don't know if I've been clear through all that, but I'm going to move on. Coming back to that question I opened with, are you discouraged in your faith by the multitudes that reject Christ? Notice that after describing Christ and our position in Christ, the Apostle Peter makes a distinction between those who believe and those who do not believe. It's all couched in how one perceives Jesus. We are told that God lays in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, which is Jesus. Those who believe in him will not be disappointed. In fact, Peter says this precious value then is for you who believe. But he goes on and says, for those, for those who believe, what will they, for those who don't believe, what will they think of the, that cornerstone? Well, he says this, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those who do not believe, Jesus becomes a scandal, right? He's something you trip over. He's something that causes you to get off your your pattern. And a rock of offense, something, um, something hateful. Notice how that hatred is manifested. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Their hatred of Jesus is manifested in that they hate his commands. Right? And that makes sense, right? It's only logical that someone who doesn't believe in Jesus would hate his commands because of the converse statement or inverse or whatever verse. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Right? If you hate me, you will not keep my commands. It's inevitably true that those who reject Jesus do so not because Jesus is unclear in what he commands, but because he is only too clear in what he commands of them. Finally, note that last statement in verse 8. And to this doom they were also appointed. Those who do not believe were appointed to that doom. What Peter is saying here is no different than what Paul says here in Romans 9. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, now Pharaoh, he's not a believer, is he? No, he's an example of an unbeliever. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Right? That, that being raised up by God was Pharaoh resisting him and rejecting him and rejecting his word and rejecting his commands. And then the apostle Paul concludes and says, So then God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Right? Pharaoh was appointed by God, or as Paul puts it, raised up for this very purpose, that God's power might be demonstrated in Pharaoh's hardness of heart and resistance to God's people. 
And that's what the Apostle Peter is saying here. These unbelievers who have rejected God's word, they have been appointed to that end. So how is this encouraging to God's people? We can take a step back and see that in the end, those who oppose God are not free from God's appointment. They are not free agents. Right? Rather than that being discouraging, that should be encouraging to God's people. It is to proclaim that nothing that comes to pass comes to pass without God's permission. Right? In other words, we do not have to fear that the unbelief we see around us is because God has lost control or is losing the battle. He is a sovereign God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. It is not merely that he can make the best of a situation, but that he decrees all that comes to pass, yet without being the author of sin. This is a great, this should be a great comfort to God's people. Why? Because when scripture says that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church, that's a rock solid promise. It is not a probability. It's a rock-solid promise. It is a prophecy with a 100% guarantee of happening. God is almighty and sovereign. He is not half almighty and half sovereign. And so when we witness a world going after paganism and homosexualism and creation worship, we needn't be despairing. In fact, we can laugh. Why do the heathen nations vainly rage? God laughs at them. He laughs them to scorn. We needn't think that we must put our trust in horses and chariots. We don't have to pivot once the battle seems to be going poorly and say, okay, God, we gave you a chance. Now we're going to take the reins because you're failing. No, God knows what is going on. He can and does always bring good out of evil. He will only allow evil men to prosper as far as he determines. So for the recipients of the Apostle Peter's letter who are witnessing a world against them, and for you and I who are seeing a nation rising up against us, We don't need to give up laughing and worshiping and trusting God. He is utterly sovereign and nothing comes to pass without him ordaining it to his ultimate glory. Right? As priests of God, we shouldn't just keep going on showing the nations how they too, I mean, we should. We should just keep showing the nations as priests of God, how they too can enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's our simple task. And those whom the Father has given to the Son will rejoice in that presence of God. So don't fret. Don't fret. Don't get discouraged by the unbelief you see around you. God is not weak like a man. Confidently act as a priest of the one true living God and continue to testify of his sovereign greatness. Let us pray.